what does it mean to be a Christian? Like, are there, are there marks or distinguishing characteristics of what sets apart or distinguishes a Christian in this world? There, there are circumstances in which that becomes an important question. To give one example, um, you've heard criticisms of Christians, right? Um, maybe you've heard things like, um, these Christians, they're always lecturing us about what marriage is or isn't, but they get divorced at a rate higher than the world does. They're hypocrites, right? Or um, maybe you've heard the criticism that these Christians, they're so pro-life when it comes to the unborn, but then as soon as that baby's born, uh, they're okay with that baby being snatched from its parents at the border if the parents don't happen to be American citizens. They're hypocrites, right? Or there's many others you may have heard. Uh, those Christians, their churches always have schisms, splits, divisions, scandals. They're hypocrites, right? How do we respond to that? On one level, the response maybe is no more than, you're right, we are sinners, just like the rest of us. Actually, that's why I am a Christian, and that's why I do go to church, because I believe that I am messed up and in need of a Savior. That's why, that's why we're Christians. On another level, those criticisms may be an opportunity for us to reflect, look in the mirror a little bit, and consider whether maybe we've brought some of that criticism on ourselves as Christians by affirming people as Christians whom the Bible wouldn't affirm as Christians. In other words, people whose lives don't line up with what the Bible says a Christian is, we nevertheless affirm as Christians. Now, as soon as I say that, um, some of you are probably thinking, well, what role do I have in affirming who's a Christian and what's not? And that's important for us to talk about. Some of you know the answer. Some of you may not. Uh, but if you're a member here at North Suburban Church, that's part of what we do at our congregational meetings. We say, um, so-and-so has joined the church. They want to become a member of our church. And then we take a vote on whether to receive them into membership, right? When we take that vote, when we vote somebody to become a member of our church, what we're saying is we've seen evidence in them that they are Christians, that they are part of the universal church. And so we are accepting them into membership of this local expression of the universal church, and we are affirming them as Christians to a watching world. But in many evangelical churches, um, the membership process is no more than you meet with somebody, maybe an elder, they sit down with you, they ask you to affirm a few doctrinal statements that even the devil would affirm, and then as long as you can articulate a time in your life in which you prayed a prayer to accept Jesus into your heart, then you get to become a member. Right? And you can imagine what the results and implications of that, right? Are there are churches in which the pews are filled with people who are members of churches who the watching world looks at and sees these are Christians, um, but who actually are not Christians at all, who actually don't line up with what the Bible says a Christian is. And so, 
when they create division in the church and when they leave their spouses and when they act like the world acts because they never were Christians in the first place, the world looks at us as Christians and says, see, we knew it. They're hypocrites. There's nothing there, of course. So that's just one example of why it's so important that we are clear on what it means to be a Christian. What are the marks? What are the distinguishing characteristics that set apart a Christian in this world? It's actually a difficult question to nail down because Jesus never used the word Christian. Paul never used the word Christian. Actually, the word Christian only shows up three times in the Bible. Two of them are uh, in the mouths of non-Christians speaking about us. Um, the Bible actually uses, prefers to use a different word for people who have been saved, who, people who have been united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. The Bible prefers to use the word disciple for someone who belongs to Jesus. 253 times in the New Testament. And so we're beginning a series today um, called The Marks of a Disciple. In this series, we're going to be trying to nail down what does the Bible say distinguishes a Christian in this world. And there are at least three reasons why this is going to be a very important series for us, we believe. One is on a personal level, for our own self-examination, right? As we walk through these marks of a disciple over the coming weeks, uh, we remember that the Bible tells us, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, right? And so, as we walk through these marks, we'll ask ourselves, look in the mirror and say, is this true of me? Am I actually a disciple of Jesus or not? Uh, secondly, it's important for membership, which I brought up a moment ago, right? Whom do we call disciples? Whom do we vote on and uh, affirm as disciples? What are the marks of somebody whom we should be affirming to the world, the watching world, that yes, this is someone who, as far as we can tell, belongs to Jesus? And then finally, as a church, we have a mission, it was given to us by Jesus after he rose from the dead, right before he ascended to heaven. He left us here with a job to do. He left all Christians with the job to go and make disciples. Right? So we ask ourselves the question, how are we doing with that? It's an important question for any church to ask, but it's especially important here at our church where we have a mission statement that we want to meet people at the well and then disciple them in the word and then send them out as empowered disciples to transform the world. That second movement, that middle movement of our mission statement, to, we want to disciple people in the word. We, as church leaders, want to be able to reflect from time to time and examine and see, how are we doing with that? Are we actually doing that? Are we discipling people in the word? And another way of asking that is, are we making disciples? We can't answer any of those questions unless we know what a disciple is, what makes a disciple. So, in this series, we're going to look at a definition of what a disciple is. And then we're going to look at 11 marks or traits of a disciple of Jesus, distinguishing characteristics that are true of us if we're truly his disciples. So, you may have seen these graphics around the church the last few weeks and in the highlights that you received in the emails. Um, it's got a little target or a bullseye on it. The reason for that is because we've conceived of this series uh, like this, kind of like a bullseye with three rings. And the 11 marks fall into these three groupings. That uh, inward circle is uh, the most important mark. It is the upward dimension, we're calling it. Uh, it focuses on our relationship to God. 
And that first mark will be that we joyfully submit to Christ. A disciple joyfully submits to Christ. That's the most important one, which is why it's at the center and all the others flow out of it. Then there's the second ring, um, which is the inward dimension. That one focuses on character traits and competencies within ourselves. Those traits are that a disciple walks by the Spirit. A disciple is grounded in Scripture. A disciple prays faithfully. A disciple repents regularly. And then finally, there's that outer ring. That represents the outward dimension of being a disciple of Jesus focuses on our relationship to others, and those marks are that we love others as disciples. Disciples extend grace, serve selflessly, give generously, are accountable, and make disciples. So, uh, during this plunge, which is the six weeks in the fall every year when we really encourage people to get into life groups and study uh, the sermon in more depth in the groups later on, uh, during this plunge, we're going to look at the definition and the first five marks. That's how we'll spend these next six weeks. And then in early 2019, we're going to come back to that final outer ring and look at the last six marks of a disciple. But today is definition day. So today we're going to be taking a moment to look together at this definition that we've worked on about what a disciple is. Um, And that's where we're going to go. So let me say before we jump in, this is not a perfect definition of a disciple. These 11 marks of a disciple that we've come up with aren't perfect either. Um, they were created by a team of people, uh, lay people, staff, elders, deacons, a uh, mixture from the church over the last two years actually, who sat down, worked on this, revised it over and over again. And though we don't believe that this is perfect, we do believe that uh, this is a faithful representation of what the scriptures teach about what marks out a disciple of Jesus Christ. Um, so today, we're going to take a look at a short scripture text that serves as a basis for this definition. Then we're going to look at the definition itself, and then we're going to ask ourselves a big question that flows from this. Okay, so thanks for bearing with me during that prolonged introduction. Are you ready to jump in? Let's do it. Um, first, our scripture text. It's First John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles, if you can, so you can take a look at the context around it. But uh, at the very least, you want to follow along up on the screen as we walk through this phrase by phrase. First uh, John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. This is John the Apostle writing, probably from Ephesus. And he's writing pastorally to people that he has a shepherding relationship over. Um, and one of his big concerns as he's writing this letter that we know as First John is that he wants his readers to know how they can discern their standing before God, right? He's writing to people that he wants them to be able to know where they stand with God. Um, so let's break down this, just two verses here, First John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, and actually we'll jump in halfway through verse 5. It says, by this, this meaning what he's about to say. So by this, We may know that we are in him. We may know that we are in him. So he's writing to people who may or may not be in Christ, may or may not have Christ living in them and them be living in Christ. And this is one of the places in Scripture, 1 John's concerned with it, the rest of Scripture is also concerned with it, um, in which the Scriptures are concerned that we know whether we are in Christ or not. 
There have always been people who think that they're in Christ, but actually aren't. And there have always been people who are all worked up and worried that they're not in Christ, when actually they are. So John is concerned about that with the people that he cares so deeply about. And he says, well, this is how you know that you're in him. You don't need to be confused anymore. I don't want you to be confused. This is how you know. What I'm about to say is how you know. And then he gives us the test. The test is this, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's break that down. Whoever says he abides in him. So there's a claim being made here that uh, this person's saying that they abide in Jesus. What's abide mean? Abide just means remain or stay in this context. So in other words, if your settled self-identification today is that you are a Christian, that you are in Christ, if you go on in your life identifying as a Christian, this is to you. Whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to do this. Ought to do what? Ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. Ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. Now that's maybe an odd way of saying that for some of you. When you read about walking like Jesus walked. Like Jesus lived before uh, what we have now, which is these running shoe stores. Right? Have you been to one of these where you get on this fancy treadmill and they analyze your gait and your stride length and the, just to get you the very perfect shoe, right? Any distance runners in the room who have done that before? Yeah. So um, Jesus lived before that time. So we don't know. I mean, we don't know if Jesus bow-legged, pigeon-toed. Um, how do we walk as Jesus walked? What John's talking about here um, is he's using a figure, oh, a way of speaking that in the ancient Jewish world, you didn't really live as much as you walked. That's how you talked about your habits, your patterns of life, your lifestyle, maybe we'd call it, right? It's not, it's not the Instagram snapshot of your life, of that moment that you're especially proud of, that you put out there for everybody to see and say, this is my life. It's it's more just the habits, the patterns, the everyday ins and outs when the cameras are flashing in when they're not, right? That's how you walk. And so John's saying that if we claim that we're Christians, if we claim that we abide in him in our terms of this series, if we claim to be his disciples, then we, our lifestyle ought to match his. The, our habits, our actions, our patterns ought to match those of Jesus. And increasingly so, the longer that we walk with him. That's what 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 are saying. So, of course, the next question you're probably asking is, well, then how did Jesus walk? Like, I want to walk how Jesus walked. Well, what, what were his lifestyles? What were his habits? What were his patterns that we're supposed to be imitating? And that's what this series is for. That's what these next several weeks will be. Uh, traits, characteristics, marks that we believe we see in Scripture of this is how Jesus walked, and this is how we ought to walk as well if we are his disciples. Um, so we'll be walking through that in the next few weeks, but our goal this morning is more modest than that. Our goal this morning is just to nail down well, what is a disciple. So we've seen the scriptural basis for our definition here in 1 John chapter 2, um, and now we're ready to look at the definition itself. Um, and so uh, I just want to walk us through our definition here in the next couple minutes. Our definition that we've come up with at the church and our elders have approved is this. A disciple is an intentional follower of Christ 
forever becoming more like him. A disciple is an intentional follower of Christ, forever becoming more like him. That'll be our operational definition during this series of what a disciple is. The key word there is the word follower. At its core, that's what it is to be a disciple of somebody, is to be a follower of that person. Uh, The original readers of the Gospels, when they read Jesus calling people to be his disciples, that's what they would have read, uh, uh, calling them to be their followers. That's how they understood it. And it might help us to have a little bit of background so that we can uh, all see together why follower is such a great term for a disciple. Um, Back in the ancient Jewish world in which Jesus lived and walked, um, you could think about it this way with an analogy. Teacher is to student as rabbi is to disciple, right? So teacher is to student as rabbi is to disciple. That was the analogous relationship. But a rabbi-disciple relationship was much more than the student-teacher relationship that we think about, right? As we think about a relationship between a teacher and a student, the student's goal really is to one day know what the teacher knows, right? But for a disciple of a rabbi... The goal wasn't to know what the rabbi knows as much as it was to become who the rabbi is. It's a very important distinction. The goal of a disciple was to become who the rabbi is. So we have stories um, from the ancient Jewish world of disciples who were so obsessed with staying with the rabbi, with getting to know the rabbi, becoming just like the rabbi, that disciples would compete with one another to see who could get the most dust from the rabbi's sandals on their own sandal. You had to stay super close to him and follow him really closely in order to get his dust on your sandals. That, that was the highest honor. We have stories from the ancient Jewish world in which disciples are um, freaking out a little bit, getting a little bit panicked when their rabbi goes to relieve himself because... They get all word. what is he praying as he goes to the bathroom? And how do I know if I can pray the same way when I'm using the bathroom if I don't know what he's praying when he uses the bathroom, right? It's to that level of obsession with wanting to follow the rabbi and become like him in every way. Um, so that's why when we read in the scriptures, um, Jesus saying, follow me, what do his disciples do, the ones who are fishermen? They leave their boats and their nets to go follow him, right? I got, I got to experience a little bit of this back in 2004. I was part of a study tour in Israel, and um, the guy that was leading our trip said, I'm going to lead this trip as though you are disciples and I'm the rabbi. So I want you to follow me and learn from me. So there I was with my little notebook and just following as close behind him as I could and trying to take notes on everything he said. And then, you know, we'd be walking for 15 minutes and he'd be teaching along the way and I'd be trying to write down as much as I could. And then he'd stop for some more intentional teaching time. And he'd say, okay, he'd reach in his pocket and say, okay, everybody take out your rock. And we'd all look at each other like, did you get a, I don't have a rock. Do you have a rock? And when he could see that we were all confused, he'd say, hey, about 15 minutes ago, I bent down to pick up a rock why didn't you pick up a rock? When your rabbi picks up a rock, you pick up a rock. And then he'd go on to teach us a lesson that was based on that rock, right? And that's the way it was in, uh, in the rabbi-disciple relationship. That's how the teaching was done. Um, 
And that's why we see Jesus' disciples accurately respond the way they do to the call, follow me. You know, if Jesus came today and invited us, come follow him, many of us wouldn't even have the instinct to leave our boats and nets behind, right? We wouldn't see any need to because um, we might think, well, okay, I'm going to follow Jesus. I can go about my life like I have been, but uh, I'm going to make sure I'm staying up to date with his social media. If he shows up in the news, I'm going to know what he's up to in the news. And I say, well, I'm following Jesus because I'm really up to speed on all the stuff he's been doing. Right? But Jesus' disciples knew it was different. When he was saying, follow me, he was inviting them to leave everything and come stay close by him and become just who he was. That was the invitation. Um, and as incidentally, as you go back and read the Gospels, then so, much, so many of the stories we read there actually come to a new light when you realize that dynamic in the rabbi-disciple relationship. For example, when Jesus comes walking to them on the water, right? for many of us, the surprising moment in the story is when Peter gets out of the boat and tries to walk on water himself, right? But anyone who is well-versed in the rabbinic world of that day wouldn't be surprised by that, right? They'd actually be surprised at something else in that story, what are the other 11 doing, staying in the boat, right? If your rabbi walks on water, you're walking on water, right? So Jesus has invited us to become like him, to walk closely to him. When Jesus calls people to be his disciples, when he calls us to be his disciples, he's invited us into much more than just showing up for a once-a-week teaching time, right? He's invited us to leave everything, in some sense, to follow him 24-7 in the dust of his sandals, as it were, following him not to learn what he knows, but to become who he is. So that's why that word follower is so critical. It's the most important word in our definition. But we haven't just said here in this definition that a disciple is a follower of Christ. We've added a descriptor here. This word intentional. A disciple is an intentional follower of Christ. Why is that word there? We've inserted that word into the definition because nobody stumbles into discipleship. Like nobody has ever drifted into becoming a follower of Jesus. There's a reason for that because the world around us and our own sinful flesh nature and the devil are all conspiring together day and night working hard to pull us away from Jesus. Right. So if we just kind of let go and drift, that drift will necessarily always, 100% of the time, be away from Jesus. It has to be, right? Which means that in order to follow Jesus, like we're talking about, in order to be his disciple, it'll require intentionality. It'll require us to uh, purpose to do so. It'll require us to order our lives around being his followers and to exert effort, actually, to follow him. A disciple is an intentional follower of Christ. Uh, but we've added one more phrase there in our definition. That final phrase, forever becoming more like him. And we've, we've added that phrase there to correct a potential misunderstanding of this definition that we thought might exist if we just left the definition as an intentional follower of Christ. The misunderstanding is something like this, that someone might think that being a disciple is sinless perfection. 
Or someone might think that we're saying being a disciple is attaining to some lofty level of holiness that most normal people never reach. But that's not it at all, right? We, we are all on a journey from the holiest person here to the least holy person here. We are on a journey. We are some step in our journeys together. Um, we are becoming like Jesus if we are his disciples. We aren't there yet. None of us is. We are trending in that direction toward Christ-likeness, but none of us has arrived there. The hope is, and if we are truly his disciples, what will be true of us is that increasingly we will look more like him. As a new chapter of our life ends, and then another chapter of our life ends, we could be mistaken for Jesus more and more as our life goes on and the chapters unfold. And I don't know about you, but I mess this up a lot, right? Like following Jesus, becoming like him, walking the way that he walked. I mess it up all the time. I thought about it this week and I was reflecting on, okay, how was this week for me? Walking like Jesus walked. And honestly, I was ashamed just thinking of how far I was from walking like Jesus walked this week. Just to name one thing. My Jesus rested in his Father. And when I wanted rest this week, I went to so many other diversions and entertainment and distractions uh, for my rest, right? Just one little way of many ways in which I didn't walk like Jesus this week. So what do we do about that? What do we do about our failures as we think about, well, if being a disciple is walking like Jesus walked, becoming more like Jesus, intentionally following him, what happens when we fail? I think that's the beauty of this thing we call discipleship in the Christian faith. The beauty of it is that when Jesus called Simon Peter, Andrew, John, and the rest to be his disciples, he already knew that they were going to abandon him at his hour of greatest need, that they were going to deny him, that they were going to just kind of generally miss the point all along the way. But he still went to them and said, come, follow me. I want you to be like me. And it's the same for us. He knew before he called any one of us in this room to follow him that we would royally mess it up, that we would miss the point, that we would deny him, that we would spit in his face with our actions time and time again. Yet, he came to us and said, come, follow me. He extended the invitation, not because he thought we were the people of all the people who would pull it off the best, but he came to us and called us just because he loved us. So disciples and intentional follower of Christ, forever becoming more like him. That's what he's invited us into. A life of increasingly being conformed to the image of Christ. Walking more and more like he walks. And his grace, his blood is big enough to cover any of our sins, any of our failures when we turn to him. So, We've looked at a scripture that undergirded this definition. We've looked at the definition itself. Now, I told you we just finished up with just asking one big question that this raises for all of us. It's a simple question. It's just the question, are you in? Are you in for this life of discipleship? Are you in for walking with Jesus, walking like he walked, intentionally following him, forever becoming more like him. Are you in for that? Before you too quickly say yes, I want to make sure it's clear 
following Jesus will cost you everything. Like literally everything. There will be no part of your life that he will leave untouched. Even those parts of your life that you feel like you're doing really well without him, that you were really a good person in this area, he'll even turn those upside down because he'll show you the ways in which you were even doing your good things for the wrong motives and even your good things actually were sinful. The cost is everything. He's asking for complete surrender from us with no reservations, with no exceptions, with no caveats. Complete surrender. Uh, He's looking for one response, and it's, yes, I will follow you. I don't know totally what I'm getting into, but I will follow you no matter what. Wherever you take me, I'm walking in your footsteps. I have no plan B and no way out. It'll cost us everything, but let me say one more thing about that. Uh, Yes, it'll cost us everything, but it's more than worth it. More than worth it. We're talking about trading in rags to get riches. We're talking about trading in a handful of dirt to get treasure, right? There's one who loved us enough to die in our place, taking the wrath, the punishment that we deserved so that we could live forever in an eternal bliss, fulfillment, joy with God in heaven. And that one has invited us to live life the way we were always intended to live life in the first place. Actually, he's the one who made us and wired us to live this way and to get our ultimate joy and fulfillment out of that. So, when we accept his invitation and decide to follow him and walk as he walked, we actually find that we have peace in the midst of turmoil. We find that we have joy in the midst of sorrow. We find that we have fulfillment that far exceeds all of the little puny pleasures that we loved before we started following him in this world. So that's the question. Are you in? Are you in for this? I know many of you would say that, yes, you are in. Many of you would say, I've been in for a long time. I've been following Jesus. And praise God for that. Let me just remind us all who would say that we are in of something that we brought up at the beginning of this sermon, that if we truly are Jesus' disciples— if we claim to abide in him, if we claim that we are his, there are certain marks, characteristics that should be true of our lives, that should distinguish us in this world. To paraphrase 1 John 2, what we saw earlier, uh, anyone who claims to be in Jesus should walk the way Jesus was walking, should have a lifestyle that matches Jesus' lifestyle increasingly. The disciple of Jesus is distinguished by a lifestyle that looks like Jesus' lifestyle. Now, I know that maybe some of you have been resistant to that idea over the course of this sermon. Maybe you have objections to what I'm saying, which is that there's some way that you can tell from the outside, from someone's actions, habits, patterns of life, whether they are a Christian or not. If you have some of those objections, make sure you text them in to the number in the bulletin because I'd like to interact with those. But before I close, I do want to just interact with one of those objections that I know is prominent and common. That objection is something like this. You can't judge a book by its cover, right? Some people, this objection would say, some people um, start following Jesus, but there's no visible life change, maybe for some time. You can't judge a book by its cover. Um, In response to that objection... 
I just think it's important that we point out that there's a strong thread in Scripture um, in which Scripture calls us to actually pay attention to the cover, to use the book and cover analogy, actually. So you have James, right? Just I'll give you three examples. In James, a big thrust of James's letter is, hey, you claim to have faith. That's cool. If your actions don't line up with the faith that you say you have, then the faith that you think you have isn't really saving faith, right? Or we could look at Paul, who talks a lot about being saved by grace through faith, right? But in a place like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he can say, hey, you say you have faith. That's great. But if you are continually stealing, or if you are continually participating in sexual sin, or if you are over and over again participating in any kind of idolatry, which is putting anything else above Jesus over and over and over again without turning away from it, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Or, I mean, we could go to Jesus, right? As we think about, can we judge a book by its cover? Jesus is the one who said, you will know them by their fruit, right? In other words, you can know something about the tree by the fruit that it puts out on the outside. You can know that it's a good tree if it has good fruit, and you can know that it's a bad tree if it has bad fruit. Um, You can know a disciple of Jesus, in other words. The summary is, you can know a disciple of Jesus by whether they walk and talk and act like Jesus acted. Now, there's plenty of implications for that for us as a church, as we think about, are we making disciples or not? Plenty of implications for that as we think about church membership and who we vote in and who we don't. But first and foremost, we need to apply this to ourselves by looking in the mirror and asking ourselves, am I a disciple of Jesus? The answer to that question, am I a disciple of Jesus, is not based on whether I grew up in a family that identified as Christian. The answer to that question, am I a disciple of Jesus, actually isn't based on whether I go to church or not. The answer to that question, am I a disciple of Jesus, actually isn't even based on whether I believe that Jesus was the Son of God who died for people's sins, right? The devil literally believes that Jesus is the Son of God who died for people's sins. The answer to that question, am I a disciple of Jesus, is not based on whether you can intellectually assent to a certain set of facts. It's the question, are you in? Are you in for following Jesus, for walking as he walked. If you are, then that's evidence that the faith that you believe that you have truly is the saving faith that you believe that it is. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet begun following Jesus, if you haven't yet made that personal commitment to walk with him and accept his free gift of salvation, today is the day of salvation for you. I'm speaking to the person who just wandered in here this morning not even really sure why you did, maybe as a last hope. Today could be the day you could walk out of here assured that you'll spend eternity with Jesus in heaven forever, and you'll experience joy in this life, even in the midst of all your troubles and sorrows, because you began a relationship with him in which you walked with him for all of your days. But I'm not just talking this morning to the outsider who wandered in. This is also a word for the longtime North Sub member who has long intellectually believed 
a certain set of facts about Jesus that are true, but who maybe realize this morning that I actually have never made the personal decision to follow Jesus. Today could be the day of salvation for you too, friend. Today, Jesus is extending the invitation to you, come, follow me. And that area of your life that you've always held for yourself and not given over to him, that area of your life in which you've never begun following Jesus, today could be the day when you start. There's no shame in it. Many of the great revivals in the history of the church have begun with church people who always believed that they were saved, realizing that they weren't, and getting saved, right? And starting a relationship with Jesus. Today could be the day you give your life to him and surrender to him and start walking with him. If this morning, whoever you are, you want to make an intentional commitment to begin following Jesus with your whole life, we want to invite you uh, during this last song to just come on up here. There'll be a couple leaders from the church up here at the front. We want to come alongside you in this moment. If you're choosing to follow Jesus today, we want to answer any questions that you have, talk to you about it, and pray with you about it um, if that's where you're at this morning. It'll cost you everything, but it's the greatest decision that you could ever make to be a disciple of Jesus, intentionally following him for all of your days. Let's pray. Thank you. You can have a seat for a minute. Let me try to answer a couple of these questions before we uh, get sent out. Um... This person cites a book and says the rate for divorce for Christians, according to this book, is 1 in 40 for believers who attend church regularly. Where did you get the information that the divorce rate for Christians is higher than for non-Christians? That's an important question, and I think it goes right along with what I was saying in that you've heard the accusation against us as Christians, right? That our divorce rate is higher than the world, and studies come out ever so often that say that. Right? And the case that I was trying to make um, is in part that yes, we as Christians have divorces and fail, but in part, some of those people who are getting divorces aren't actually Christians. Right? And so this book is saying that if you attend church regularly, it's one in 40, it's much less. Right? But many of our churches affirm people as members, as believers who don't attend church regularly. And that's part of the problem, that we affirm people as Christians who aren't marked out by the sort of life in Christ that the Bible talks about. Um, Next question, how does becoming more like Jesus and not trying to attain sinless perfection change the way we pray for others, especially those who say they're in Christ but don't act like it? Sorry, I'm just processing this question. I'm going to read it again so I can process it. Um, How does becoming more like Jesus and not trying to attain sinless perfection change the way we pray for others, especially those who say they're in Christ but don't act like it? Um, I think for folks in my life um, who um, profess faith in Christ but have had some reason to question how sincere that commitment is, Um, The prayer is that Jesus will grab hold of their hearts, not that they will attain sinless perfection, not that they will just make incremental gains in their life, but that they would experience regeneration, which is the the removal of their heart of flesh, uh, or a heart of stone, and being given a heart of flesh, in the words of Ezekiel 36, so that 
the things that they used to love, they now hate. And the, the God that they used to hate or ignore, they now feel affection for. And out of the overflow of what's changed in their heart, they want to live increasingly like the God who saved them uh, in Jesus. Last question. How could following Jesus as a disciple turn into being someone's disciple? Especially in a generation where no one wants to submit. How could following Jesus as a disciple turn into being someone's disciple? Especially in a generation where no one wants to submit. Um, I think if I'm understanding the question correctly, this could be asking about the interaction between, hey, Jesus is the one we follow, but also we have people... Uh, who are Christians in this life that we try to imitate their, the way that they act. We're called to do so by the New Testament. Um, ultimately, we don't want to place our faith in any human being here on earth as our person that we follow to the ends of the earth no matter what, right? So many of us have done that with people that we really looked up to and respected in our lives, and then when they inevitably get taken down off their pedestal and are shown to be imperfect like we all are, it can really rattle us and shake up our faith. Um, that's why what the Bible actually calls us to is to hold people in high regard who are our mentors and look up to them and imitate their way of life, but treat none of them as ultimate. Only Jesus' example is ultimate. And we follow them, these other humans, insofar as their life lines up with the life of Jesus that we see in the scriptures. Um, so uh, I hope that those were actually the directions those questions were going. Hope I understood them correctly. Let me uh, leave you with this benediction. If you'd stand as I leave you with this blessing as we go out. You know, we need God's help if we're going to do this. We need him to be the one who's empowering it. If we're going to follow Jesus, we need the Holy Spirit living and working in our lives to fuel our discipleship. And so let me leave you with this from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.